If your Bibles go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. I'll help you follow along if you have that. Um, so we're going to slowly work through a, a big chunk of chapter 5. Really verses 22 to the end of chapter 5. So that'll end about verse 33. <clears throat> My goal today... Um, obviously preach the word, but beyond that is to walk us through, kind of in summary fashion, what we've talked about <clears throat> from 22 on, and kind of draw that all into some sort of conclusion for us. What is this pointing to? What does that have to do with the way we think about this passage and the way we think about marriage. So that's my goal. We're going to start with kind of a review time, if you will, <clears throat> and then kind of slowly start to draw some things to a conclusion, and hopefully in a couple hours from now we'll end uh, there. That was supposed to be a joke, if you were fun. <laughs> so let's read. Ephesians 5, verse 22. <clears throat> he says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. Let's pause here for just a few moments. <clears throat> the idea of submission is not, I just simply do what I'm told. It's not being a doormat. It's not many of the other misconceptions and wrong teachings we've heard about the idea of submission. But rather... As we talked about a number of weeks ago now, the idea of submission is this, that your calling, that your role is to arrange your life under, to actively seek to arrange your life under God's authoritative care primarily through your husband as a wife. That, that looks different than just sitting around waiting and then being told what to do. Obviously, we rejected all of those misconceptions, at least publicly. See, submission is a gospel issue we talked about. How if you can submit to Christ, then you can submit to your husband. Understanding how the gospel works in marriage life. I don't have time to draw this out, but for now, that's what I'll say. Submission is largely this idea of seeking the will of the one in authority. We also talked about how submission is ultimately to the Lord. That a wife's submission is not ultimately to her husband, but unto the Lord. That what he says is the final say. That submission then to the husband is born out of a fear of Christ. Not a 
terrifying fear, but a, a respect and a reverence for Christ. It's out of that that a wife submits to her husband. And finally, I want to bring back up the idea that we talked about called submissive resistance. What's it look like for a wife when she's being led in a way that is not faithful to the Scriptures? That her husband is leading them to do something that is sinful? How does she respond? What is she to do? The Bible says to submit to her husband. What is she to do? We kind of gave you this terminology. It's not found in the Scriptures, but I think it's represented in the Scriptures, much like the word Trinity is. It's this idea of submissive resistance. So I want to point out to you, ladies, that there's a way to, or remind you, rather, that there's a way to still be submissive and respectful to your husband and yet disagree and even not follow him into sin. That is righteous unto the Lord. That is good and needs to happen. And that's your submissive resistance. I mean, notice I'm not saying rebellion. Because remember, this is ultimately to the Lord. So it's not rebellion. But there's a way to, that actually when you say to your husband, I will not follow you into this sin, that you're actually pointing him in your resistance to his own authority, Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, ladies, that when your husband is in sin, that if you support him and or follow him in it, that you are sinning as well. You don't get the pass of, well, I was just following my husband. Again, you can do this in a respectful way. I wrote this in my notes actually this morning as I was studying. One thing I've grown very weary of, very weary, weary from over the past few years is husbands leading their wives right into sin and them following. It's one of the reasons why I've been so passionate about this series is because I've seen this multiple times and it breaks my heart. So ladies, I would encourage you to appeal to His authority. Appeal to His authority. That's your, that's your route. So the question is, what's His authority? It's the Scriptures. And then through the Scriptures, His elders. Those are two of your husband's authorities. I'd also encourage you, ladies, that if he's not submitting well to both of these, then he's not leading you well. So I wanted to take the time before we move on to parenting and slaves and masters and what's it like in the workplace and then put it on the whole armor of God and, and we kind of leave behind this marriage thing. I want to lead you all to remember these things. Ladies, here's my encouragement with you is this. Follow God's word at the end of the day. Like that's your responsibility first and foremost. Follow God's word in the fear of the Lord. That is your calling. 
That's where you can rest. Ephesians 5.25, let's continue reading. He says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, this is a call to sacrificial love. That your leadership must look like, is required to look like, sacrificial love. That your headship, that your, the, the very nature of your husbanding, right, is to, <clears throat> to sacrificially love your bride. You see, we lead, men, we lead most clearly, most effectively, most authoritatively, and most like Christ when we live most sacrificially. Husbands, sometimes this means even sacrificing yourself being liked in your family. And maybe even by others. By leading them to do something they don't want to do but is faithful to God. See, the sacrificial love is a gospel-enabled love. You can only do this as you understand and live and know and breathe the gospel. More on that in a bit. This kind of sacrificial love requires death to yourself, men. And husbands, let me remind you here as well that if you're not submitting well, then you're not leading well. If you're not submitting well, then you're not leading well. If you want your wives to learn how to submit to you, then you model submission for her. So sacrificial love. Let's continue. It says in verse 26, that he might sanctify her. So he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, your call is to not just love her with a sacrificial love, but with a sanctifying love. That you have in mind, in everything you say and do in your marriage, the goal of her treasuring Jesus Christ. Period. That's the goal. Her communion with God is what you are called to lead her toward. You're not called to lead her to look more like you want her to look. Unless the way you want her to look is her treasuring Jesus. Be careful. Because a lot of times those things don't line up. A lot of times we just want her to look more like us. But there's this intentional, purposeful leading of our wives towards loving and treasuring Christ in submitting her life to Christ and to Christ's words in his scriptures. Verse 28, Paul says this, In the same way, 
Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because, more on this in a bit, we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, husbands, you should love her with a sacrificial love, a sanctifying love, and also a satisfying love. That you will be satisfied, husbands, as you care for your wife, because in the one flesh union that he talks about here and in Genesis, that you're indeed actually caring for a part of yourself. As Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, it is just, it's, it's not even helpful to think of the two as two. Certainly we're individuals before the Lord and, and have different needs and all those things, but the Bible tells us we, that God has united us as one flesh. If we're to understand the gospel, we have to understand the one flesh as we talked about last week. You see, the one flesh union is the fundamental essence of marriage. That when God most basically talks about marriage, He speaks of it in terms of the one flesh union. <clears throat> and we talked about how the only path to one flesh clinging is through the idea of this naked and not ashamed that we read in Genesis 2. We saw how this one flesh and this satisfying love is very tied to the Garden of Eden. As we looked at last week. But this leads us to a question. Leads us to a question. Is our goal just to get back to the Garden? So if we understand the garden, we understand what God's doing in Genesis 2. Is our goal just to, to make sure that we're properly functioning in the roles that God has designed for us? Even as blissful and joyful and glorifying as that would be, is that the goal? That we would have that kind of marriage? That we would have that kind of husbanding? Or that we would have that kind of wives? Is that the goal? That we just go back to looking like it did before the fall? Is that the purpose of all of this? I mean, that would be great, right? That it would just look that way? I mean, like, that we would get back to that and we could enjoy the way God originally intended for it to look? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I'm not asking a trick question. I think that would be wonderful. Genesis 2, 23 through 25 says this, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Listen to this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were one flesh without any hindrance. But I would encourage you with this. That's not the goal. That's not the goal. As awesome as that is, that's not the goal. 
When God wrote Genesis 2, he had someone else in mind. Ephesians 5 verse 32 says this, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This one flesh union, this uniting of people in Genesis 2 refers to Christ and the church. He says the mystery is profound. So what is the mystery? The mystery refers to the relationship between Christ and the church. See, if you look at the Old Testament even, marriage is used, and we'll use a big word here for you, typologically. Like, meaning it's like, a, it's like a shadow of the real thing. It's a type of this that's kind of the, to show us what it looks like until the real thing gets here. So marriage in the Old Testament is used very often when talking about Yahweh and His people, the Israelites. But then what happens when we get to the New Testament is that Jesus, in a very profound way, takes over this teaching and boldly calls Himself the Bridegroom. In this marriage relationship. So if you read the Old Testament, you understand marriage, you go, wow, that's what Jesus is saying. That's crazy. He presented himself. Listen, Jesus is saying that he was Yahweh. That he was in this divine marriage. That that was his role. That that's what he's come to be in this relationship with his covenanted people. Again, we talked about this idea of sacrificial steadfastness of the heavenly bridegroom and his covenant love for his people. That's what Paul's picking up on here. And it began in Genesis and travels all the way through the Old Testament, all the way to Ephesians, and will continue on past Ephesians to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation when we who are his bride will sit down with him at a table and feast. Paul's teaching here is not just a New Testament thing. It's grounded in the Old Testament. And the church's marriage to Christ is, is represented, if you will, back in Adam and Eve. You see, Genesis 2 was always about Jesus and His bride. It was always more than just about Adam and Eve. God has always been pointing us to His Son, Jesus. The Son, a man who would leave His Father and leave His home and would cling to and hold fast to His bride, the church. You see, the purpose of marriage is this. is to be a parable of the beautiful union of Christ and the church. That is our call. That is the purpose of marriage. That is why God instituted marriage. It's for us to be a parable of the beautiful union of Christ and the church. Philippians 2, let's flesh this out. 2, 6 through 8 says this, speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A passage definitely worthy of at least 15 sermons. Uh, we will just briefly address it here. So Jesus is with his Father for all of eternity. All of eternity past, enjoying the wonderful communion of the Trinity. The comfort of his home, the safety of his home. And as we looked at earlier in Ephesians, the Father having chosen those who would make up his bride in eternity past, now commissions his son to go get his bride. Jesus leaves home. But you see, his bride is dead in sin. Ephesians 2 tells us that they're actually enemies of God. That the ones to whom God has chosen, that Jesus is going to go to cling to, are actually enemies of God. But Jesus leaves his Father and carries out this beautiful and incredible plan of redemption whereby he readies his bride. He washes her with his word and his blood. He gives her his very own righteousness. The mystery is how Christ, through the gospel, calls a bride to himself, unites his life with her, and then how Christian marriage is to illustrate that sacred act. You see, if we get the purpose of marriage wrong, then everything we do and why we do it will be wrong. Listen, if you get the purpose right, then you shouldn't need a play-by-play on how to treat your bride, or how to prioritize your children under the marriage. You shouldn't need a, a, a walkthrough on how to do certain things and how to apply all of this. If you understand that the purpose of your marriage is to be a parable, to be a display of this wonderful mystery of Christ, calling to Himself a bride and uniting His life with her. See, if you get this purpose, you'll understand the importance of the bride as a whole, the church as a whole, and your commitment to helping other marriages fulfill this purpose as well. Here's a quick test. How much time do you spend in your marriage with your spouse on frivolous things? How much conversation is devoted to how we together are accurately showing and displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, husbands, the love you have for your bride is meant to be a parable of Christ's love for the church. Your actual love for her is meant to be a parable of Christ's love for the church. And hear me, men, this isn't 
just going to happen because you asked Jesus to come into your heart some 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. It doesn't just happen naturally. The gospel, the word of God has to come to bear on your life. In 5, verse 33, he says this, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Paul is repeating. He's kind of hearkening back to what he's already said and in a kind of a reminding way. You see, Jesus loves his bride. How does he do this? How does he show his love for his bride? Ultimately, by taking her sins upon himself. By saying, I will pay the price for you. I will sacrifice my life for you. You see, he lays down his life for all those who give up trying to pay for their own sin. And instead, trust in him. You see, Jesus deals with this, listen, Jesus deals with his bride's sin, not with justice, but with grace. Jesus took the justice she received the grace. How does Jesus love his bride? He loves her in spite of her sin. But he doesn't just ignore her sin. He deals with it. So husbands, right? In reality, you have no ability to deal with the sin of your wife no more than you can deal with your own sin. So what's this mean for you? We must trust in the work of Jesus when it comes to her sin and her following. This means that you get to take part in his work. The work of her sanctification. Her growing to treasure Jesus Christ. It means as a believing husband with a believing spouse that you should view her as the cherished possession of Jesus Christ that she is. You see, your sacrificial leadership is key to being a parable of Christ and his husbandry. So husbands, the measure of the grace shown to you in the cross of Christ is the measure of grace that you must show to your wife. Let me repeat that. Husbands, the measure of grace shown to you in the cross of Christ is the measure of grace you show to your wife. That's the standard. Again, grace is not just overlooking sin. I would say it's not overlooking sin at all. Grace is actually dealing with life according to the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ. That means saying the hard things when they need to be said. Being kind always. Walking in gentleness. And pointing to the hope of the gospel not condemnation. As you love your bride, husbands, with this covenant-keeping grace, you're showing the world the truth of Jesus and His bride. And when you're not, you're telling the world and showing the world a lie. That's what's at stake. There's more at stake than just one healthy marriage. 
What's at stake is the gospel of Jesus Christ on display for the world. For you unmarried men, let me encourage you for just a moment. Two things. One is this. Be encouraged as you look at husbands trying to model Christ's love for their bride. Look for it. Encourage it. Be thankful for it. Why? Because they're showing you a picture of Jesus Christ. It's meant to be a grace to you. It's meant to be kindness to you. But second, this, I would say, understand that this earthly husbandry is not the final goal. Instead, the eternal husbandry of Christ is the final goal. So rest in the real thing. Don't idolize the shadow. But let the shadow encourage you. So husbands, your love for your bride is meant to be a parable of Christ. Now wives, the respect you have for your husband is meant to be a parable of the church's respect for Christ. Again, just as I said to the husbands, this isn't going to just happen. Ephesians 5.33, Paul, again, Paul's not pulling this out of nowhere. He's been building to this point. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the church respects Christ. How? How are they called to do this? By trusting Him and following Him. By arranging her life under His authority. The church, clearly as we know, does this by seeking the Scriptures. Does this by arranging her own life under the appropriate authorities in this life that God has ordained. So wives, in reality, I know I don't, maybe don't need to tell you all this, but just in case you were wondering, your husband is not Jesus. Nor will he ever be close to being like Jesus. However, it is Jesus who placed him as your husband. You too must trust in the work of Jesus when it comes to his sin and his leadership, speaking of your husband. Listen, wives, and this goes for men as well, but the forgiveness you have for your husband as well as your humility will be key to unlocking respect to your husband. There's this implication in here that that in order for this to work, there's this trust and respect and and this... uh, this, Placing yourself under, that, that, is, that is to take place. So you too, ladies, as you respect your husband, trusting Christ to lead through your husband, will show the world something true about Christ, or show the world something that is false. Your life is always telling a story. By God's grace, it is our responsibility to make sure we're telling the right one. For you unmarried ladies, let me encourage you the same as the unmarried men. Be encouraged as you look at wives trying to model the church's submission to Jesus. Look for it. Encourage it. Be thankful for it. It is meant to be a grace to you. But also understand that this 
earthly parable is not the final goal. That you too, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you are just the same, a bride of Jesus. One day, church, human marriage will be done. Why? Because the real thing is here. We no longer need the parable. We no longer need the type. We no longer need the visible display between humans to help encourage our faithfulness to our eternal husband. Because the real thing will be here. Whether you're married or not, you get to be a part of this reality now through the blood of Jesus. So husbands and wives, your marriage is meant to be a parable of our heavenly marriage. That's sort of like the climax, because in doing so, we are taking a grand part in this showing the world the marvelous work of the gospel. Right, we get to be a part of this beautiful painting where the chief artist is making the appropriate strokes. But we have to ask this question. How? How does this, how does this take place? I mean, this is marvelous. And I know there's different steps to get here and talking about what does submission look like and what does leadership look like. And, but the path is so long. Maybe we've been heading down the wrong path for so long. How does this look to, to, to slowly turn the Titanic? What does this look like? Man, we, just, we have our whole marriage ahead of us and we've just had a couple years together. What does this look like? We don't want to end up on the wrong road. Oh, how? You see, Christ's covenant-keeping grace is both the vehicle and the fuel for Christ-exalting marriage. Christ's covenant-keeping grace is the vehicle and the fuel for Christ-exalting marriage. Listen, you can read all of the marriage help books you want to. You can claim all the life experience you want to. But the only way to have the kind of marriage that is a parable of the gospel of Jesus Christ is by His covenant-keeping grace. You see, the ultimate resource for Christian husbanding is not simply self-sacrifice. It's Christ's sacrifice. That's the only resource. The ultimate resource. Listen, the ultimate resource for a Christian wife is not simply self-sacrifice, but again, Christ's sacrifice. In verse 29 and 30 of chapter 5, he says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because why? Because we are members of His body. like Paul's cluing us in here to something very profound. But he says, as Christ does the church. Because by grace, we are what? 
We are members of his body. What does that sound like? What does that sound like? We've just been talking about this union of these people. You see, for the husband, it means that a husband's love for his wife is intimately and ultimately tied to his knowledge of Christ's love for him. And that for the wife, it means that your submission and your respect is intimately tied to your knowledge of Christ's love for her. Let me put that in simpler terms. You will only love your wife to the extent to which you understand Christ's love for you. And vice versa for the wives. You see, Christ's great love is shown in His covenant-keeping grace. You see, we know that close, vulnerable union, as we talked about last week, with another person requires what? That naked and not ashamed. It requires the removal of sin and shame. The same is true in our union with Jesus. In order for us to be united with Jesus, it required what? The removal of sin and shame. And we know that the only way to be naked and not ashamed is to be clothed in the blood of Jesus Christ and have all your shame wiped away. It is only in that faith living that you will grasp the love of Christ and so love your spouse and respect your spouse with the same. You see, Christ first loved us. A husband, secure in Christ's love, will love as Christ requires. And a wife, secure in Christ's love, will submit as Christ requires. And 29b to 30 says, just as Christ does the church. Again, because we are members of His body. What does Christ do? Christ loves and nourishes the church. But He loves and nourishes her to do what? To be a spectacle of His love. That we might treasure Jesus so much, men, that we would lead our wives to treasure Jesus in the process. Listen, your leadership is directly tied to your understanding of the work of Christ and where you stand in Christ. Your leadership rises and falls on this very realization and truth and faith living. You will only... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because He first loved us. Wives, husbands, both, listen to me. We will have no resources to serve another if we are not sure of our standing in Him. That's why Paul is pointing here to this, you're a members of His body. Listen, if you are running on empty because of your lack of faith living concerning the gospel, then you will inevitably suck personal energy from the life of your marriage. Like a, like a dry sponge. You see, our union with Christ is the fuel and the vehicle for our union with our spouse. 
However, let me be quick to remind you that the lesser serves the greater ultimately. That the gospel doesn't serve just for you to have a good marriage. Even though that's, that does happen. But your good marriage ultimately serves to display the gospel. But when we think about our marriage and we think about how is it that I'm going to get at this healthy marriage, where do we go? We just make ourselves sacrifice more. We just have more discipline. I mean, yes, those things are good and we need to do those, but we've got to start someplace else. Where do we start with? The one who laid his life down for us. That's where we start. You see, only when our hearts are bursting with the knowledge and experience of His grace do we have the resources we need to work hard toward a Christian marriage. Only when. Husbands and wives, without a sure relationship with Christ, we simply do not have the security or strength necessary to sacrifice for the good of another. You don't have it. You don't have it. Listen to me here. If your marriage has been rocky, this is where you start. You don't start at better communication. You don't start at reading the next greatest help book for marriage. You start here. If your marriage stinks, it's probably because your and or your husband's walk with Jesus stinks. We start here. Without a sure relationship with Christ, we will not have the security or strength necessary to do what's necessary in our marriage. Ultimately, the only resource we have that enables us to love as Christ requires is Jesus' love for us Himself. This, this is why Paul, go back and read and reread and reread and reread until he gives you faith to believe. But this is why Paul is so careful to spell out the assurance we have of God's love for us through the sacrifice of His Son. That's why he says, because we are members of His body. This is why. This is how. Only when we rest in His love can we reflect His love. Someone I read this week said this, the degree of confidence we have in the strength of God's care for us will largely determine the measure of selfless tenderness we can express to others. Listen, a husband and wife will only work hard at a gospel marriage to the extent to which they know and treasure the grace of the gospel itself. But a marriage that is measured and motivated by the treasuring of grace and the cross of Christ will be a beacon of hope to all around them who are seeking to treasure this same gospel. Let me take us one step further. What hope do we have for our marriages? 
We've been talking about marriage for weeks. What hope do we have? We're broken, sinful people. Where we prioritize all the wrong things. And we're given this beautiful and wonderful and glorious opportunity to show the world and to be a part of God's display that Christ can redeem sinners and unite with them and bring about selfless leadership and submission. How? How? Again, I would point you back. It's not going to be on the screen. When Paul is using this language that he might present to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle that without blemish that that he that Jesus cherishes his bride just as 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 he and and the body are members of this same body there's this <coughs> There's this uniting of this flesh. What's our hope? It's there. That's where our hope is. Our hope is this. is that Jesus clings to His bride. That is our hope. That is our hope for gospel marriage. That is our hope for Christian marriage where joy abounds. Jesus clinging to His bride is our only hope. Jesus clings, listen, Jesus clings to what? That which He treasures. That which He loves. That which he values. Jesus clings to that. And he doesn't let go. A speaker and counselor Aaron Sroni said this. He is the one who says, I know the deepest sins. Your deepest failures. I know the deepest part of your heart. I know you at your most vulnerable state. And I love you. And I will never forsake you. I will hold you fast. And I will never let you go. Jesus is the one who epitomizes being naked and ashamed, making himself utterly vulnerable, even to the point of death on a cross. He's the one who holds us fast. He is the one that became one flesh with his bride. You see, as we grow to cling to one another in a Christ-reflecting way, The one flesh union we have deepens and grows stronger. And it points us and others and gives us and others a compelling glimpse of another union. This eternal union that Christ has forged with His bride through His blood. So I would encourage you this, with this. He clings to us. His bride, He clings to. His bride, He holds her fast. 
That is our only hope. Abide in Him, and He holds you fast. That is our hope. Aren't you thankful that He clings to His bride? Because if it was given to my own efforts, I'd probably walk away. Let's pray. Father, we don't have the grip that you have, that your son has. We don't, we don't have the tenacity that he has. We don't have, we don't have the perseverance that he has. We don't, we don't have the forethought and the foresight that he has. Father, we don't have the measure of grace that he has. We don't, we don't have the kind of mercy that he has. But thank God you have. Your son and your spirit have. For we do not have these things in and of ourselves to make this kind of marriage work. We only have these necessary things like perseverance and mercy and grace. having received them from your Son as His chosen bride. Father, if there's anyone here that I don't, don't know if I'm His bride, I don't know, I don't feel that way, I don't know that. And Father, that you would give their heart unrest until they figure that out. Father, that you would lead their heart to cease trusting in their own works and perception that maybe they could pay for their sin and believe by faith that Jesus is the one and only one who could deal in the appropriate way with their sin. And Father, as we think about marriage, Father, the purpose of our marriage is that it would be a parable of this incredibly glorious relationship between your son and the bride whom you have chosen for him and that he then subsequently rescued at the cost of his own blood. That, Father, when we think about being wives, as we think about being husbands, that, yes, we need to put forth the hard work. And the reality is, if we truly are resting in the fact that Jesus clings to us, His bride, and holds us fast, that we will work hard. So Father, please, give us a new and fresh affirmation of the love your son has for his bride. Father, help our weak faith. Give us the grace to trust and believe.
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.